0: Um, my own answers to this are similar to what you've been been sharing. I'll add there's a couple of things uh, that I think um, specifically that uh, haven't been mentioned but um, for myself when I'm questioning whether God loves me it's it's when bad things happen to me or when I pray and things don't change Um, and there are actually some scriptures that scare me, that I read and I think, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like loving God or that God could love me. And similarly, when I think about others and what might me- lead me to at least be- or feel like maybe God isn't all love, it's when bad things happen to innocent people, especially, um, or when bad people succeed, Um, And then again, there are also some specific scriptures that I read that just make it seem like, well, maybe God isn't all love. Um, Whatever we came up with in our minds, whatever we came up with, our text for this morning is a rebuttal um, from Paul for anything that we can ever think of that causes us to doubt God loves us or that God loves others. In some of his most persuasive and powerful and poetic language ever, Paul assures us that there is nothing and no one that can ever take God's love away from us. And I would say, including ourselves. Paul's language is so persuasive that he has actually created a problem that has plagued the church for centuries. In the first few verses of our passage for today, Paul speaks boldly about God's mysterious presence in our world and God's mysterious work in caring for all of life, both human life and all of creation. He writes, uh, beginning at verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. More literally, it's probably works for good with those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, God also predestined, come back to this, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of their son that he might be, uh, in, he might be the first born among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, God also called. Those God called, those he justified, those got justified, glorified as well. So Paul uses the dreaded word predestination, and he uses it twice. And that word is uh, particularly a sensitive word for Presbyterians because the founder of our denomination, at least in terms of its theology, um, Jean Calvin, he was French, so it's not John Calvin, it's Jean Calvin, is one of the most well-known theologians associated with this word predestination and the idea behind it. Calvin believed a few things really strongly. One, that God is in complete control of all of creation. God is absolutely sovereign. He also believed that God is eternal, so that all that we think of as past, present, and future in time, for God is all eternally present. And Calvin believed that God knows everything about everyone ever. So for Calvin, when he put all those things together, it led him to believe that God was in control of everything that happened for human beings in history and knew all of it before it happened in in our understanding of history. In that sense, God as sovereign determined everything before it happened, destined it. So this is predestination. For Calvin and Paul, this is a wonderful truth. It means that God will get us through everything that happens in our lives, even our deaths, so that we can be raised to new life and live in this eternal life with God. God will get us through everything. That's what Paul is extolling here, that we are absolutely assured of a future, our future with God in God's kingdom. That's what he's after with, we know that God, in all things, God works for the good with those who love him, who have been called according to God's purpose. For those God foreknew, God predestined to be conformed to the likeness, to share in the life of uh, the son, Jesus. That Jesus might be the firstborn of a huge family of brothers and sisters. That Jesus will have all sorts of brothers and sisters. And this is the part where it's just like A a chain. And those God predestined, God also called. Those God called, God also justified. Those God justified, God also glorified. In fact, Paul is so certain of this glorious future that he puts all of the verbs in past tense, even though in our understanding of linear time, one of those steps hasn't taken place yet, the last one. We have not yet been glorified in our understanding of time, but Paul puts it in the past tense because in Paul's mind, God's the one who promises, and so it's as good as done. I mean, it is done eternally, but even for us, it's done. He's so certain of that. That's what Paul and Calvin were after, is that our future is assured because it's in God's sovereign hands. Unfortunately, there were some people who took Paul's words, took the words of Calvin, and made claims that neither one of them actually ever made. Some claimed and still claim that all of this means that God predestines, predetermines who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That is not the case, and Orthodox priest Patrick Henry Reardon explains what Paul and Calvin were after. God is the Lord of history. God knows everything ahead of time. Knowing everything ahead of time, God quietly and mysteriously, and we need to understand the, the mystery here, God mysteriously arranges circumstances and in order to bring about the greater good for all humankind and for all of creation in the biblical context where this verb predestination appears with for the verb signifies the providential arrangements by which god brings people to the grace of the gospel The expression biblically always refers to an act of divine grace, love, gift. It never, biblically, it never refers to someone's eternal loss. The notion of eternal decrees by which human beings are predetermined to heaven or hell is one of the most monstrous ideas ever to tempt the Christian mind. That's his take on that, rather, Reardon tells us, and this is what I believe firmly, the purpose of these reflections from Paul is to bring hope and reassurance into our hearts. And Calvin was absolutely the same. This was never meant to discourage anyone. This was meant to absolutely give strength and courage to Christians in the midst of suffering especially. And the point is, again, God will never back away from God's grace and God's call. God is permanently on our side. God will never betray us. So Paul continues in verse 31. What then, considering that, shall we say in response to this? Now, before he even gets to that, all of a sudden, another idea pops into his mind. Uh, If God is, well, excuse me, actually, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Before he gives any of us a chance to answer, he says, God, remember, the one who didn't spare their own son, but gave up Jesus for us all. How will God not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The Expositor's Greek Commentary makes a brilliant point here. When, uh, when Paul writes, how will God not also give us even more? They, they put it this way. The argument of selfishness is that he who has done so much already need do no more. The argument of love is that he who has done so much is certain to do more. That struck me so much because we live in such a, wor- a world of such selfishness. And I, I see it in myself, I know in myself, that this, the idea is, wow, God's already done so much. There's, you know, why would God do more for us? But that comes from a mindset of selfishness. A concept, an argument, a mindset of love is, God's already done this, why would God stop now? This reminds us that God is love, always love, generous and abundant love. God is always seeking to do more for us. Paul continues on with this idea that if God is for us, who could possibly undermine God's favor? Uh, It's as if he sort of gets inspired by the images of a court trial. Uh, Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it is God who justifies. So who is it that condemns us? Well, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, is at God's right hand side like a defense attorney, constantly interceding for us. And uh, so who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Solomon, Andrea, uh, the uh, theologian from Madagascar that I've quoted several times in this series, he notices another important verb tense choice by Paul. The accusation is posed in the future tense. Who will bring a charge against us? Which reminds the reader of the coming judgment, which could be a scary time. But Paul's response is in the present tense. It is God who justifies in the present tense. The declaration of justification has been signed. We already heard Paul declare, for there is now no condemnation. Now, already, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then, Paul directly confronts one of the strongest strongest challenges to our belief that God loves us. Suffering. Suffering. In verse 35 he says Who shall separate us from the love of Christ do you think for yourselves and others that it is suffering shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword any of those things And rather than try and minimize the problem and say well you know that those things just happen Paul actually augments the situation. He says, as it is written, for your sake, God, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds even worse. And this is a a quote from Psalm 44. And the psalmist, when writing about this, is writing about suffering specifically because they are God's people because they are trying to follow the ways of God. God, we are suffering for you all day long. And one of the commentaries explains how this confused the original writer of the Psalms. The point of both the Psalm and the Epistle lies in that phrase, for your sake, God, for God's sake, meaning suffering for the sake of God. This is what the psalmist could not understand, that men and women should suffer for sin for infidelity to God, that made sense. That was intelligible enough. But they were suffering because of their faithfulness. And the psalm, the original psalm, is his despairing expostulation with God. But Paul has a completely different understanding of suffering. We've seen it earlier in points uh, uh, with this sermon, I mean with this letter, Paul considers suffering inevitable for God's people for two reasons. One is simply that we live in a sinful world, it's broken, and and we suffer because of it. All people suffer. But also, followers of Jesus Christ suffer specifically because they are followers of Jesus Christ, in Paul's understanding. The ways of Jesus confront human beings with their own sinfulness— And people don't like that. People don't like to be confronted that way. And so Jesus suffered attacks in his own life, injustice, and even execution because of this. For Paul and other biblical writers, if we are following God well, if we are following the way of Jesus well, it will likely bring on even more suffering. So far from being a sign that God doesn't love us, or that God has abandoned us, suffering connects us to God's love at an even more intimate level, depth even, I should say. Paul puts it this way. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall all of any of this suffering, trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, danger, sword? In fact, again, as it's written, for your sake, God. In fact, we face death all day long and are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Does this eliminate us? Jesus, Paul says, no, none of this eliminates God's love from us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and loves us still. Nothing can take away God's love for us however it may seem to us. Before I get to the last two verses of our text and closing this sermon, I wanna point out a a quirk of Paul's language, use of language. In verse 37, uh, what the NIV translates as a phrase, in all this we are more than conquerors, three words. In Greek, it's actually just one word. A literal translation would be more like super conquerors. And Paul loves words like this, uh, super something. It's the the Greek prefix hooper, It almost even sounds like our super. Um, Paul loves these types of words so much that every now and then he just made them up. He would add a super to another existing word and it would be super whatever. And so... A lot of people think that that's what Paul did here, is that he just added super to conqueror, and here we go. We are now super conquerors. There are words like this in Paul's writing that scholars haven't found anywhere else, so they figure Paul probably made them up. Paul is a very enthusiastic writer. Sometimes he makes up words. Sometimes he gives meaning to old words, gives new meanings to old words. And a lot of times, we we even saw this here, he interrupts himself and what he is saying because he's clearly been struck by a new or an additional thought and so he'll go off on a tangent for a while. And then sometimes he comes back, sometimes he doesn't. He's a very enthusiastic writer. This is important for us to know as we look at the way that Paul closes this text for this morning. Paul so earnestly wants his readers to know to the core of who they are, the core of their being, that nothing nor anyone can ever take God's love away from them. That his mind and his words just sort of tumble out and pile on top of each other. As readers, as listeners, There's a certain point where, rather than analyzing all of the specifics, it's far better to just simply let the words and the Spirit fill us. Paul wants us to know the strength of God's love for us, the strength of God's love for us. So as one commentator put it, he heaps up words here at the end to reach our souls with this assurance. So with that in mind, I'm going to close by reading a handful of snippets um, about uh, the strength of God's love for us and end with Paul's last two verses. I won't give any comment or any context for these snippets. Just let the Spirit implant them in your heart and mind. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all their wealth, to or all the wealth of their home and their house for love, It would be utterly scorned. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How wonderful, how glorious, how secure is the gospel. Those who are in Christ Jesus are as secure as the love of God. The merit, power, and the intercession of Christ can make them. They are hedged round with mercy. They are enclosed in the arms of everlasting love here is a vision to take away all loneliness and all fear. Paul is saying you can take, think of every frightening, terrifying thing that this or any other world can produce. Not one of them is able to separate the Christian from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, who is Lord of every terror and master of every world. Of what then shall we be afraid? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons or present or future or any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.